They'll remember, beginning of the book, chapter 1, first 15 verses, apostleship and mission. The authority of the word of God and the mission of filling the earth with the knowledge of God. What's that with? The word. The word is the thing that's used to fill the earth with the knowledge of God. It's by the power of the Spirit. The thesis, chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So what we have here is a justice and a life by faith. And then the righteousness of God being revealed from the word to the individual believer is what's laid out. And then we have the explanation of the righteousness of God being explained in multiple ways. Chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20 talks about God's righteousness as a judge, how he is righteous in himself. And also how his righteousness is revealed in the law, and that we are therefore guilty and deserving of wrath. Chapters 3, verses 21 through 5, 21, teaches about the righteousness of God imputed to the believer in justification. Remember, imputed righteousness is a covering. It's a covering, it's a covering. The next thing we talk about is sanctification. It's inward. Sanctification is inward. Sanctification is inward. So, Justification is external, it is legal, it is forensic, it has to do with the courtroom, it has to do with law. Sanctification has to do with the changing of your beliefs, the changing of your inward morality, and it results in doing good works and speaking good words. So what is justification? Question 33 of the Shorter Catechism. A ju- justification is an act of God's free grace. Act. It's punctiliar. It's at a moment in time. It's once for all. Once for all time, not once for all persons. Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight. He pardons and He accepts. It's His pardoning. It's a legal act as a judge. And He accepts us as righteous. It's His acceptance. It's His acceptance. He's the one that counts us as righteous. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, the grounds, the basis, the meritorious cause of our justification is Christ's righteousness alone. And then, the instrument, the way that that is accepted, it's received by belief alone. It's received by faith alone. The vow five. We've captured this in our church covenant. Do you believe that you are guilty and helpless as a sinner against God? Repent of your sin and believe that God, by grace alone, has pardoned all of your sins and accepted you as righteous in His sight only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to you and received by belief alone. I have emphasized this in the review because it's important. I've emphasized it because it's important. I'm using every means I know how. Repetition in each sermon. Repetition across sermons. Emphasis by pasting the shorter catechism answer and by pasting the covenant. This is important. If I weren't a Puritan, I'd use neon signs and movie clips. This is important. 
Now, when we get to sanctification, this is the righteousness of God imparted to the believer in sanctification. This is chapters 6 through 8, Shorter Catechism 35. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Okay? It's a process. It's a process. Sanctification doesn't just occur once. It does begin at a moment in time, but then it progresses. And that progress is the renewal of the image of God. It's the renewal of your rationality. It's the renewal of your knowledge. It's the renewal of your holiness. It's the renewal of your righteousness. It is you being renewed after the image of Christ. And it's progressive. And it makes it, it empowers us to live under righteousness. Now, we capture this in vow 6. Do you believe that because God is the Lord, your God and your Redeemer, having saved you from your sin by grace alone, through faith alone, and the mediatorial work of Christ alone, that the only reasonable response to God's authority and mercy is to live your life as an acceptable sacrifice to God, seeking to glorify Him, in the whole of life, by knowing the truth, acting according to the knowledge of the truth, and spreading the knowledge of the truth. All out of gratitude for the grace of God given to you. There's the the motive of that Christian life. Having assurance of salvation is very important for being able to be motivated to live out a Christian life. To be able to live in gratitude. Chapter 9, we talked about last week, Here the righteousness of God and His plan of the predestination of all things for His ends, by His means, at His initiation is laid out. It's His plan for His ends, by His means, at His initiation. He predestines everything. Now, what we have, we talked about, is the fact that we look at the, the claim that, well, if God's love is unchanging, why has He cast off the Jews? And we talked about the covenants. I laid them out in short form for you there. The major things are the covenant of works before the fall and the covenant of grace given in chapter 3 of Genesis. And that covenant of grace is given in five old administrations to Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and then David. And then there's the new administration, the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace as well. And that is given to us in the current form that we have. And so we have a simplified portable form that has more knowledge with greater gifts that have a greater extensive power. So, page 3. Continuing with chapter 9, we talked about how not all Israel is Israel. And so there's three ways of thinking about Israel as a national body, a church body, and spiritual Israel. God saves all of spiritual Israel. Not all of national Israel. Not all of church Israel. Now, there are objections about predestination that came up. I have them listed for you there on page 3. And I gave you major points to remember about the answer, how you answer to people. Now, this is explained in a little bit less plain language in Romans 9 and verses 14 to 29. But I've tried to make it as easy as possible to remember. First of all, when somebody says, God causes evil, doesn't that make him evil? You say, God's above the law. What standard are you judging him by? God's above the law. There's not a God above God. There's not a law above God. God is God. 
I think Mr. Boyston reminded me that Vody Bauckham says, God's not running for God. So God's not running for God. He is God. He's above the law. There's no judge to call him before to say, what have you done? And there's no standard to judge God by. God is the definition of good. What he does, he is good. He has good goals, and he uses good means. So then there's two ambiguities that I try to make sure you get cleared up. Go to page four. The will of God is a term that he will try to use to catch you. Whenever people talk about the will of God, figure out what are you talking about? The commandments of God? Or are you talking about the decree of God? What he tells us to do or what he chooses will happen in history? Which one are we talking about? And the other thing is, if God's the cause of evil, what sense are we talking about that in? Okay, so we have different causes. And I talked about that at length and I went through this originally. I did not re-explain that last time and I'm not going to re-explain it now. But I would really encourage you, if you want to know more about that, to go back to my sermons on Romans 9. And I would encourage you to do so. But it's a little bit much for me to try to push everybody to remember right now. But if you're trying to, if you feel like you've got what we just talked about, and you want to have a deeper ability to explain and answer, those will be very helpful for you. Now, um, the other points are sort of uh, drawing out of some of what I've already said. I'm going to move on there. So we get to the new part. Go to page 5. Chapters 10 through 11. The righteousness of God in his treatment both of Israel and of the nations is laid out. So here we're talking about God's treatment of Israel and of the other nations. So chapter 10 focuses on the rejection of the Jews and the inclusion of all the nations. How is this just? So Verses 1 to 4 lays out a ground for the rejection of the Jews. And that gets summarized for us in verses 3 and 4. And this is an important little verse set, so I'm just going to read those word for word. They're on the handout. For they, the Jews, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Okay, now, remember, the thesis talks about the righteousness of God, and we have a high concentration of the term righteousness in this little set. Okay, so this is appealing to all of the unpacking of the righteousness of God that we've already done. Okay, so this is sort of him, this is Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, coming in and packing back down the things that have been unpacked. So, God's righteousness is a righteousness in the law. The way that there is an ignorance about God's righteousness, even though the Jews heard the law preached over and over again, is a failure to see how they can't keep it. If you come up with a way of coming up with making the law keepable, you're doing it wrong. You cannot keep the law. It is perfect. It reaches to every aspect of life. It is spiritual and touches the soul. All of your affections, thoughts, words, and deeds are judged by the law. You cannot obtain righteousness before God by keeping the law for yourself. It's not keepable for you as a fallen person. You're guilty in Adam. You have a corrupt nature. You commit particular sins out of your corrupt nature. 
For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, that's a self-righteousness and a redefinition of the law, so there's legalism, making up a self-righteousness and making up a human law. Why do people make up human laws? They make up human laws because they're more keepable than divine law. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So how did they not submit to the righteousness of God? They didn't submit to the righteousness of God and they didn't submit to the judgment of God as judge that they're guilty and they need a savior. Okay, so they were ignorant of God's law and seeking to establish their own law so they could be righteous under that, have not submitted to God's judgment that they're guilty. That's what verse 3 is saying. That's all been unpacked in the righteousness of God throughout this. But it's being said here. So Paul is taking the same term over and over again. This is showing us how Paul wants us to get his unpacking. He's packing it back down, and he's showing us, hey, we explained all this, and this is only going to make sense if you substitute the meanings I've explained into verse 3 at the different uses. Verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ was always planned to fulfill the covenant of works, and the covenant of works with man was given to Adam with the goal of having Christ fulfill the covenant of works as a second Adam to represent all of the elect. So, that's the idea that Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the goal of the law. The covenant of works was given with the intention of Adam failing and with the intention of the second Adam succeeding. Now, verses 5 to 10, salvation is explained and shown to be the same for both the Jews and to the nations, the Gentiles. Now, when we look at that, verse 5, the righteousness which is of the law tells us to do and to live. It's the covenant of works. Verses 6 through 8 show us that the righteousness of faith is. So there's this idea of don't ask who will be able to accomplish these impossible feats. Who can do the law? Only Christ. Verses 9 to 10 talks about salvation in a narrow way and a broad way. The broad way is a usage of the word salvation to include all of the benefits of salvation or all the benefits of justification. So we have effectual calling, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification, all of these things. That's the broad sense of salvation. Salvation can be used in a very narrow way to talk about we don't get the punishment. We're justified. We get the reward instead. Now, the idea here has to do, people will often quote verses 9 and 10. Okay, let's, let's read them because they're very famous. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. People will often quote that to show you how to be saved. Let me tell you what, 
If you're trying to show somebody how to be justified before God, do not tell them they have to confess with their mouth to be justified before God. Justifications by faith alone, not by faith plus a confession with your mouth. This frequently gets used that way. It is very important that you not tell people that this is telling you a list of stuff that you've got to do to be justified. It's using salvation in the broader sense. Confession is one of the means of growing in sanctification. When you confess your faith before men, it strengthens your faith. Now, believing in the heart is that whereby we have righteousness. So even this text teaches justification by faith alone. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. With the heart one believes unto righteousness. With the heart one believes unto righteousness. Confession causes us to grow in sanctification. Now the confession of the gospel is important to get right. What is the gospel? Okay, when I went through this before, I went through 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11. That's a summary of the gospel. I had it printed out on the old handout. I almost put it here again. It is one of the texts that I would encourage a new believer to memorize. If you are thinking about what to memorize and you want to be the most efficient you possibly can to get the foundational things memorized, here's what you should memorize. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11, the gospel. The Ten Commandments, which is law. And the Lord's Prayer to teach you to pray. This is a cut out all the fat, maximally efficient, get established in basic things text hunt. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11 is going to teach you that news about what Christ did and about the authority of the scriptures as the foundation of knowledge. The word of God. Then, you're going to have in the law an outline of the duties of this life. The Ten Commandments are sufficient to show you your duties in all of life in principal form. And the Lord's Prayer is sufficient to give you in principal form everything you should ever pray for. Gospel, law, prayer. Now, gloriously, the Shorter Catechism does an excellent job of explaining these for you. Questions 1 through 38 are going to explain the Gospel to you in great order. 39 through 81 is going to explain the Ten Commandments for you. And then, most of 82 through 107, which is the end of the Shorter Catechism, most of that is an exposition of the Lord's Prayer. Well, about a third of it is. 98 through 107 is an exposition of the Lord's Prayer. Now, the idea of what should be believed, here is this growth of what should be believed, and what we confess as a church is laid out there. Go to page 
6. Chapter 10, verses 11 to 17, the same God and gospel are fitting to all and should be preached to all. Verses 18 to 21 gives proof of that same doctrine from the Old Testament. Now, remember, we're in the middle of chapters 10 and 11 as a chunk, and that is going to lay out for us the justice of God and how he deals with the nations. We've, we've seen the justice of God in the rejection of the Jews and also how the Gentiles deserve that rejection. And so there's this bringing in out of grace. And in the bringing in, we're also reminded, hey, Gentiles, don't get too cocky. Because the reality is that the rejection of the Jews was not total, and it is not final. Verses 1 to 10, the rejection of the Jews not total. A remnant larger than many would suppose, by the way, was preserved. But the mass of the nation was cast off, as was prophesied by the prophets of the Old Testament. Verses 11 to 36, the rejection of the Jews not final. Verses 11 to 32 talks about the restoration of the Jews and how it's desirable and how it's certain. And it will bring in a renewed life to the earth. The covenanting of individuals, households, churches, and nations is laid out as sort of the social work that needs to be done. And that's going to be explained for us in chapters 12 and 13 and onward, by the way. I tried to emphasize that when we were going through, but hopefully the flyover here will make that even more clear. So when the nation of the Jews is brought back in, what does that look like? Okay, well, we're told what's going to happen is the nations, the Gentiles, will be brought in. What does that mean? What does it mean when nations are brought in? It means that a nation is baptized. How do you baptize a nation? Well, it happened once with the flood, but that's not what we're talking about. The baptism of nations that we're talking about is the covenanting of nations, where nations enter into a covenant to acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ. What is baptism? It's a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. How are nations baptized? Not by every single individual person in that nation being baptized physically with water, but rather by the covenanting of that nation. And that has happened in many countries over history. Every nation will covenant to acknowledge Christ as king to acknowledge his word as the authority to protect Christian liberty and to administer biblical justice. Every nation will do this. Now, when the Gentiles have covenanted, the Jews will become jealous of the favor of the God of Abraham and they will bend the knee to Christ they will covenant that is what we are told that is what is prophesied now that is why the rejection of the Jews is not final and when that happens there is a renewal of life to earth there is a greatness that comes in that condition 
And this is the goal that Paul talked about back in chapter 1 of filling the earth with the knowledge of God. That reason he's going out to the nations is to cause them to know God. And he's saying this is going to happen. And he ends this long section explaining all of this in verses 33 to 36 with the famous doxology that ends the exposition of the gospel leading into the section of Romans focused upon the law of God. Now, how is this, chapters 10 through 11, how is that the display of God's justice in his treatment of the nations and of the Jews? He's telling us about how the justice of God will be perceived by and in and through the example of every nation. The justice of God, the righteousness of God on display as he causes the law order of God to more and more fill the earth so that the nations and the Jews obey the law as the righteous angels do in heaven more and more. Not perfectly, not inwardly without any sin, but more and more. That's what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? It will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now, we get to chapter 12. Go to page 7. Chapter 12 has a hinge thesis. Chapter 12 through 16 is the section about how we accomplish what is talked about at the end of chapter 11. Here are the means that are appointed for conquering the world. Chapters 12 through 16. This is the righteousness of God on display in the rational service performed by the saints. So here's the hinge thesis. This is, alright, lots of gospel laid out. Now let's talk about law. What are you going to do out of gratitude now? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's break that down a little bit. I beseech or exhort you. Right? This is Paul saying, now let me speak to you in such a way as to give you strength to perform. He tells us to think because of that desire that he's going to cause us to perform by strength words, by the power of the Spirit, and because of all the arguments that came before Brethren, by the mercies of God, that's the motive, by the mercies of God. So what is that? When you think about mercy is given to you, grace is given to you, that should motivate you to gratitude. So out of gratitude, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now you remember earlier on, we were told to make our bodies instruments, weapons of righteousness. So this is a capturing back of that saying, 
alright, because this is what you were saved for, you were saved to be a weapon of righteousness, therefore, make your body a weapon of righteousness. Sacrifice yourself. When you have a sacrifice, you take the sacrifice from one use, and you give it over to another use. You're saying, I'm giving up this other thing for this purpose. We are to be a sacrifice where we give up the ways of the world. We give up the thoughts of the world. We give up the words of the world. And we make our bodies a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice is different from a dead sacrifice. Let's think about how. A living sacrifice is a sacrifice that in its living is devoted to its purpose. A dead sacrifice is killed so that it can be used for that purpose. We are made alive so that we can live according to this purpose. So our thoughts, words, and actions are to be put to the purpose of the glory of God. We are to be holy. Holiness. I hope that the definition immediately popped into your mind. Holiness is being set apart. It's being set for a purpose. Acceptable to God. Right? A living sacrifice that's holy. It's kind of redundant, right? A living sacrifice is holy. If it's a sacrifice, isn't it holy to something? Isn't that the point of the sacrifice? It's not being used for one thing. It's given for another thing. That seems like holiness. Redundancy on purpose. Holy. Acceptable to God. Well, if you're going to offer a sacrifice to God, don't you think it would be wise to give one that He accepts? Why is that there? For emphasis. For redundancy. Because we have a tendency to offer sacrifices to God and say, well, God, you're lucky that I gave you anything, because frankly, most people don't, so I know you'll accept it, and if there's not anything good in it, you'll forgive it. That's your job. That's the attitude that we are prone to about God. And it's disgusting. It's horrifying. He's a holy God. We are called to seek out what kind of a sacrifice is acceptable to God. He took the effort of giving to us a rather long book that is sufficient. It's not a rough draft. It's a final draft. It is clear. It connects together. We are called to search it out. To know how to live an acceptable life to God. To be a sacrifice that's acceptable to Him. And this is our reasonable service. This is our rational service. This is how we give a service, a religious service, a priestly service to God. Our lives are the sacrifice, not bulls, not sheep. Our lives are the sacrifice. And our service, our priestly service, is offering that sacrifice. Priests that don't care very much about how they sacrifice get fried. If you read about the institution of the priesthood and you read Leviticus and you read about the priests that were not careful to get fire from the right place to burn incense, they got turned into crispy critters. 
that is what happens. God's wrath, God's discipline or punishment, depending on whether you're elect or reprobate. Verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world. There's a contrast. The antithesis is brought out again. The antithesis. We are either doing what God commands or we're not. Everything that's not what God commands is sin. Whatever is not of faith is sin. What's faith? Faith is what comes from hearing the word of God. The word of God is sufficient to tell us what is good. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Faith is not superstition. Not things you made up. Not things you got from human beings that came before you. Faith is not superstition. Faith is not ignorance. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is not any of those things. Faith is understanding and believing the revealed truth as it came to us by the revelation God has given. Can you prove it from the revelation? And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. There's a a contrast between conformity and transforming. Conforming is about being pressed into a stamp where we're being taken and we're made into dead, dead, dead creatures that are stamped into a form versus being transformed. The word metamorphosis comes from that Greek word transform there. The metamorphosis is like the living transformation when you go from a caterpillar to a butterfly. There is this glorious, beautifying, freeing, empowering, speed-giving work. The transformation. How does the transformation occur? By the renewing of your mind. How do you get your body to be put to this rational service? By the renewal of your mind. The renewal of the mind. Your mind must be made new. The new man must grow and the old man must die. You put to death the old beliefs. You tear down everything, every thought, every objection in your own thoughts that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. And you subject it. You argue with yourself. Apologetics is principally for you. You want apologetics? A lot of young men want to learn apologetics for the reason of being able to shame unbelievers. That's great. It's a great use. I'll tell you what. As time goes on, you will find that the best thing about the apologetics you learn is that you are able to use it to shame yourself. In the quiet of your own prayers before the Lord, you will be able to confess your sin more deeply and know your own unbelief more truly. You will be able to find all of the ways in which your thoughts used to be idolatrous and silly and foolish. And the forgiveness that you have you will see more deeply. Apologetics is first and foremost for you. If you get wisdom, you get it for yourself. There's an overflow. There's an externalizing of benefits that occurs. But it's for you. You'll not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove, prove, prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If you can't prove it, If you can't prove it, it's not in faith. If you can't prove it, it's not in faith. Think about how important it is to be able to give a reason, to give a defense for the hope that is in you. 
if you do something that you think might be taught in the Word of God, as opposed to, I know that this is what God has said. So the proof. The knowledge of God is so important. Do you think good works are more important? Wrong. You don't know what a good work is apart from the Word of God. The knowledge precedes the good works. Can you prove it? Can you do it in faith? Then it's not a good work. The knowledge of God, the transforming by the renewing of the mind, is what causes us to be able to be living sacrifices that are holy and acceptable to God, to be able to give a reasonable service. So we need to be able to prove what is good. We need to be able to prove that it's acceptable to God. We need to be able to prove that it is the perfect or complete will of God. It's not a will of God that's revealed partially. He's given to us his whole counsel. He has shown to us in the law everything that we ought to do. There is a fullness of the law. It is sufficient. We were designed by God and he gave us the instruction manual. And he is not a Chinese manufacturer that does a bad job at translating sentences. Lord God Almighty accurately and fully communicates everything you need to know to operate yourself well. So chapter 12 goes through there, from there. And it's about the renewal of individuals to put service with gifts, to be put to service with gifts and offices. Verses 1 to 8 talks about the regulated principle of doctrine, worship, government, and life. It starts to introduce us to the fifth commandment, how to deal with the people. We get into chapter 12, verses 9 to 21, and we have love and relative duties that are in the fifth commandment about how to deal with each other and how to maintain Christian order in society. And we get to chapter 13, and it gets to the renewal of individuals and the renewed civil and social order in the fifth through tenth commandments. Verses 1 to 7 are the famous verses about the civil magistrate. People will typically say, see, verses 1 to 7 says you need to do whatever the guy with a gun and a badge says. That is not what it says. Verses 1 through 7 fits into the context of talking about how the world will be renewed. Verses 1 to 7 is about the qualifications of a legitimate magistrate. If the magistrate does not do what verses 1 to 7 say, he's not a magistrate, he's a bandit with a gun. And he has a play badge. Verses 8 to 14 talk about the attitudes that are necessary for good order to exist. Now, remember, what Paul does there is he talks about the 5th through 10th commandments and he says that love of the neighbor is explained in those commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's summarized in, and then he gives commandments 5 through 10, the commandments to how to love your neighbor. He's showing us that the law is sufficient to teach us how to love. Do you see that sort of a reinforcing of what verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 say? The sufficiency of the law for every good work. Chapter 14 talks about the duties of church members in the transitional period of the days of Messiah. So we talk about food, and we talk about days, 
And we talk about how to deal with each other's consciences during that. The days being talked about are not Saturnalia. The days being talked about are not human traditions. The days being talked about that were allowed to continue were the holy days of the Old Covenant. And they were permissible, though not required, after the death of Christ. They are not required and not permissible after the destruction of the temple. So there is this narrow period of time, a generation, during which there is a permissibility but not requirement for some people to keep those days and to keep kosher laws. The two major ways that 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 text gets misinterpreted is, one, with the days, people say, see, there's no Sabbath obligation, but if somebody wants to keep a Sabbath, you know, don't harass them too much. And if you believe that there's a Sabbath obligation, don't impose it on anybody else. That is not true. That is bogus. That nullifies the fourth commandment. It makes the scriptures into something that does not make sense. The Sabbath is a creation ordinance. The Sabbath is not an old covenant institution. So, what we have is a situation where that gets misinterpreted principally, and oftentimes, the other way it gets misinterpreted is to apply it to days like Christmas. The Apostle Paul was not talking about a holy day invented from popish tradition. The Apostle Paul was not talking about things that are invented by men. He was talking about the Old Covenant Holy Days. The context makes that obvious. We did not have liturgical calendars made up in the New Covenant Church yet. And there was no point in time at which the Jews who had not apostatized believed that it was acceptable to celebrate pagan holy days. We are not talking about New Covenant liturgical calendar, and we are not talking about man-made days from other religions. He is clearly talking about the Old Covenant days. Now, when we talk about food, the way this gets interpreted is, first, people will say, this is talking about the old kosher laws, and they'll include in that food dedicated to idols and blood. No. Acts 15 teaches us that those continue to be binding on us. The commandment to not eat blood was given at the institution of the human right to eat animals, given to Noah. We are not allowed to eat blood. Acts 15 makes that clear. We are not allowed to eat food dedicated to idols. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that it's food that's been sacrificed to demons, and we will not participate in the table of demons and of Christ. Revelation condemns the eating of food sacrificed to idols by two churches. Acts 15 makes it very clear, and Acts 21 repeats it. So what we have is this is not talking about all food laws whatsoever. It's talking about the kosher laws. The other way this gets misinterpreted is people say, this is talking about special diets. And so they'll take this out, and the sermon will be, now I know you think that the keto diet is really good, and you think that this other thing is really good, but we shouldn't really impose this on each other. That's not what the text is talking about. 
That's true. But that's not what the text is talking about. What the text is talking about is kosher laws. It was okay for Jews to follow kosher laws until the destruction of the temple. At which point, it was them denying the completion that had been accomplished in Christ. And so keeping kosher laws out of conscience is not permissible. You need to repent of that and realize that you are allowed to eat bacon. Praise the Lord. Now, chapter 14, verses 13 to 23, communicates how we are to use liberty with the goal in mind. You can sacrifice your liberties sometimes for the sake of your brother's conscience. The way the Apostle Paul applies this, for example, in 1 Corinthians is, he says, I'll tell you what, you guys think you have the liberty to eat food dedicated to idols? And he tells them why they're wrong later on in the book. He says, okay, that's fine. Let's pretend you have that right for a second. I'm an apostle, and I'm working for free. Don't I have the right to get paid for my work? So don't I have the right to eat food in exchange for the work I'm doing? And guess who didn't pay me? You. That's who he's writing the letter to. He says, so get over it. Stop eating food dedicated to idols because you think you have the right and crushing your brother's conscience. Stop. And he's telling you, don't use your rights to crush your brother's conscience. Be careful about the use of your rights. Restrain your own liberty sometimes for the sake of winning your brother and showing him what the Word of God says. And then he says, and actually, you don't even have that right. If you eat from the table of demons, you should not eat from the table of Christ. That's what he says. All right, so then, chapter 15. This is about the goal, filling the earth with the knowledge of God and the means of covenanted uniformity. It talks about being of one mind and being of one confession. There's an exhortation to unity in doctrine and practice, and there's an expression of confidence in God and that the goal will be accomplished. And he ends it with chapter 16. Verses 1 to 24. Remember, verses 25 to 27 are in the critical text, but not in the majority text. I think they're in the uh, small set of the Byzantine texts, and so that's why they're there. But verses 1 to 24 is in the majority text. And remember, verses 25 to 27 are earlier on. I can't remember where at this time, but we talked about it multiple times. So, this last part talks about salutations. Greet this person, that person, that person, and this person. And what it says is, it's giving to us an example of a culture of honor. It's showing us how to care for people, how to love people, how to be priestly towards each other, how to try to build relationship. We need to pour into each other, care about each other, honor each other, give things up to bless each other. We do that in order to make it so that there's a strengthening of the bond that we have in Jesus. As we sacrifice and serve, as we honor, as we put others before us, as we outdo each other in honoring one another, as we do all of those things, there's a building up of a culture of honor, there's a building up of unity, there's a building up of care. And it makes it so you have the reservoir of relationship, the reserve of relational capital, to be able to rebuke each other. That's necessary. We are each going to sin. And in our pride, our tendency is to say, shut up, to put a hand up, and to leave. We need to help each other 
to have more things to pull on. The truth matters. Covenant of duty matters. Honoring each other. Pouring into each other. Relational investment. The Apostle Paul shows us that. The Holy Spirit took up the space to fill this letter with this chapter to show us a culture of honor. And so love and honor, mutual respect, a calling out of each other's virtues and graces helps us to have not a fragile community, but a tightly bound, strong, durable community. And so as we end out thinking about this glorious book, importance of the church and its unity is emphasized at the end take every pain to pour into each other and bless each other that there might be binding power of love and covenant it's important because we in our unity are to testify to the truth of the gospel and the unity of the church is a powerful and important part of our testimony to the world. If we are not unified in doctrine, if we are not unified in practice, if we do not love each other and cause people to say, see how they love each other, then our testimony will not be listened to. Comments, questions, objections? Voting members and those with speaking rights.